This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. This episode, we're going to get started with selling at farmer's markets. This is a topic I've been asked to talk about a lot, and we'll talk more about why this has become a popular topic request here in a bit. But we're also going to make this a two-parter because there are things that we need to think about before we even get to the actual gardening part of it. Yes, planning a garden with the intention of selling some of it is different than just selling the extra that you happen to grow. And we'll talk all about all of those details in part two. Today, we're going to walk through all the things that I didn't take into consideration before I started selling our produce in our CSA program and at multiple market stands. This is quite literally a I did it all wrong, so let me tell you how not to do it episode. <laughs> In the question of the week, we're talking green sweet potatoes, and in the DRL, it's vintage camper life, crawdads, and a vegan running coach. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So the question of the week this week comes from Alyssa via Instagram, and she said, I grew sweet potatoes. I've been curing them for two weeks using the plastic bag method, and the potatoes are green. What did I do wrong? Should I toss? First off, I would have totally freaked out, but there is a reasonable explanation for this, and the good news is Alyssa's sweet potatoes are completely edible. Sweet potatoes contain flavonoids and different water-soluble compounds that can turn green under certain conditions. Much of it has to do with the acidity level of the potatoes and the amount of moisture. Essentially, what Alyssa is seeing is oxidation. This is the same process that causes potatoes, both sweet and Irish, to turn that weird brown color after they've been exposed to the air, just with a different result because of the moisture level in the bag. Sweet potatoes need a certain level of heat and humidity to cure properly and to bring out that lovely sweetness, but too little airflow can cause a buildup of excess moisture and cause this reaction. If the bag had been vented and the sweet potatoes had been moved around a little bit to provide more airflow while curing, this likely would not have occurred. Alyssa also mentioned that many of them started sprouting while they were curing, which just further affirms to me that basically the humidity was just too high. But they are edible. This reaction is different than if we have green Irish potatoes because those contain solanine, which can make us sick in large amounts. But sweet potatoes are not in the same family as our other spuds, and they don't contain solanine. 
Alyssa's potatoes are fine to eat and they should be dried thoroughly to remove any excess moisture before being stored in a cool, dry place. I would recommend that she check on them frequently in storage just to be sure that no excess moisture is causing mold issues. Okay, time for the DRL. What am I doing? Well, right now, I've just gotten back from being on the road. The market farming season has slowed dramatically, allowing us to make a quick escape to visit two of our kids and their families, including one of our grandbabies that we don't get to see very often. So we pulled Lulu the camper out and we took our time getting to Ohio for the visit stopping along the way at a KOA campground in Illinois, and then stopping on the way back uh, at a KOA campground on Old Route 66, south of St. Louis. So if you're a camper in the U.S. and you've never tried a Campgrounds of America campground, they are super easy to use, and they're always located close to a main highway. They've got primitive camping spots just for your tents, They've got spots for RVs with varying levels of services and then little bare bones camping cabins if you want to rough it a little bit but you want like some solid walls um, and heat. <laughs> um, some locations also have deluxe cabins with full-blown kitchens and all the amenities for if you have a larger group that wants to camp. There's usually a pool and other activities for kids. They're clean. The campgrounds that we've been to have had full shower facilities and a little camp store. So it's a nice alternative to finding a campground like at a state park or another campground in an area that you're just not familiar with. They're super convenient while we travel, although not all of them are open year-round. Some are only open like March through the end of October or April through the end of October. So we have to choose our sites accordingly. So we were in Ohio, we got to visit family and it was, uh, it was a fantastic time and a nice little break away from the farm. So what am I reading? I took the opportunity of a few days off the farm to buy an actual physical book to read instead of downloading something to my Kindle, just to give me something tactile. And I bought Where the Crawdads Sing. I haven't seen the movie, it just happened to catch my eye on the shelf and so I grabbed it and didn't even open it. <laughs> I spent the whole time kind of visiting with the kids and and uh, and we ju I just didn't open the book. So it's you now sitting in the stack of books that are on my to-read list and I swear I will get to it. Um, so if you've read it already and you have an opinion, uh, message me, let me know. I haven't even opened it yet. And then what am I listening to? I'm listening to the Planted Runner podcast with Claire Bartholik. She is a plant-based runner and a running coach who used to be the host of the Run to the Top podcast, which is owned by Runners Connect, who Claire was a coach with. Well, she decided to leave Runners Connect and she started her own podcast. And I loved what Claire did with the Run to the Top podcast. And she's brought that same creativity to her own show. Now, while she is vegan, she is plant-based, that's not the gist of the show, actually. Her social media handle and her website have always been The Planted Runner, so it made sense to name her show that, too. But it's a very diverse show with lots of running, training advice, and great, informative guests. And I'm super happy that Claire is off to such a strong start with her podcast. So if you're a runner and you want to check it out, I'll leave a link in the show notes. All right, so let's talk about selling your garden produce at 
the farmer's market or through a subscription box or however you want to sell it. This topic in one way or another has been asked of me more and more frequently since 2020 compared to in previous seasons for sure. I think the shutdowns that we experienced from COVID at the beginning of 2020, which moved us into shortages of certain goods and bare shelves in grocery stores, certainly pushed many people towards starting their own gardens. But I also think that many also started shopping the farmer's markets more because when shipped in goods weren't available, many times they were available from local growers at the farmer's market. Many of those new gardeners have continued to garden, which I love. And experienced gardeners saw the influx of shoppers at local markets. I think this has had a compounding effect where new gardeners see the amount of food they can grow for themselves and their families and maybe extra to donate and still have some left over. And experienced gardeners have seen the potential for expanding their gardens to maybe make a little side money, capitalizing on something they already know how to do and enjoy doing. This has people asking the question, how do I sell at a farmer's market? I've mentioned on this show the way that we started our farm and how I came to be talking about gardening to you, my gardening friends, every single week. I mean, it's even in the intro, honestly, but while I talk a lot about how to grow the things we all want to eat in our own gardens, I've never talked in detail about how I got to the point of actually selling them. I've talked about it on a few other podcasts that I've been on, but not extensively here. I've also not talked about how we do it here or how I've seen others do it. What's required? What's a nice to have? How do you market yourself? So today I'm going to start with a little background really quick on how we got started in selling our produce to the public and then I'll give you the lowdown on what you need to know before you decide that selling to the public is something that you want to do. I'm going to tell you all the things I should have done or thought about before we jumped into sales, and then we'll leave the planning and the growing information for next week because it deserves and needs its own episode. The timing of these episodes is pretty poignant because we've just finished up our CSA deliveries for the season, our Community Supported Agriculture Program. Um, Our farmer's market season is just about done, and that's always a good time for me to reflect back on what worked this season and what didn't, and I can share some of that with you. And if you're considering growing for market for next season, having this information now will give you the chance to mull that over and start getting prepared now to position yourself in the best way possible. So how did we actually get started selling? Honestly, I say we are accidental farmers. We did not intend to be farmers. We were sort of beginner homesteaders. When we moved from suburbia to our five-acre plot of land in the summer of 2006, the first thing that I did was get set up to have chickens for eggs and meat, and I plotted out the garden area. It was a full half acre of the front of our property, and I had grand plans for that space. I had only had like a little tiny corner in our previous backyard, so to say I went a little overboard is not an exaggeration. I planted miscellaneous things that first late summer into fall because we kind of moved in mid-season, but the 2007 garden was what really made the leap. I planted that whole half 
an acre. We had so much food. We planted way too much sweet corn, tons of green beans, and then we learned how backbreaking picking bush green beans can be. Um, carrots, radishes, which, by the way, I hadn't ever eaten up to that point. I just heard they were good companions for carrots, so I planted a boatload of radishes alongside my carrots. Um, cucumbers, tomatoes. I grew my first spaghetti squash, like the best spinach I had ever eaten. Lettuce, you name it. I learned to preserve through canning and pickling and freezing. And even with that, we were giving produce away to friends who we were having come to our place like every single weekend so we could feed them because I had so much food. I thought I learned a ton about gardening that year, mainly that it was easier than I thought it would be on that larger scale. And as I sat in my office working each week on client work for the business that I owned at the time, my gaze kept drifting out the office window and I was looking at my garden going, well, gee, you know, I mean, I love being outside. I would much rather be out there right now. How can I make money from my garden? Maybe I could spend more time outside and less time on this computer and make the garden, selling something of it, like a side business. But, okay, how do I sell it? I didn't even think about the farmer's markets right off the top of the bat at that point. I just jumped online and sort of started doing online research, trying to figure out, all right, well, how do other people make money growing produce? And I came across the concept of community-supported agriculture. It was very popular on both the East Coast and the West Coast at that time, but there wasn't really anybody doing that in our area. So, okay, well, that sounds like a great idea. And the idea was that people would pay for um, their share in the off-season, and that would give us the money to be able to buy our seeds and buy our supplies. And we would do all of that in the spring. We would do all the planting and everything else. And then when those people had bought in, well, they would get their share of whatever we were harvesting at that point. Cool. That sounds amazing, right? Not only would I have money up front to be able to buy all of the seeds and everything else that I needed. But then if I grew some extra, right, if I if there was more than what I needed to put in my little CSA boxes, well then I would go ahead and sell the extras at the farmer's market. I had to have a place for these people to come and pick up their boxes, right? And they weren't going to drive all the way out to where we were, at least so I thought. So I thought, all right, well, where they pick up would be the farmer's market locations. And then if I have extra, well, then I can sell the extra while I'm sitting there and waiting for people to show up and pick up their boxes. Sounds great, right? Cool. I got it. And quite literally, that was it. That was how I figured out I was going to make a business out of our garden. And I decided we would start with 15 shares because that seemed reasonable based on what I had grown that year. Like I could share this with 15 families. And if I planted some extra, well, then I would still have some to sell at the farmer's markets. So I listed the CSA online on a platform called localharvest.org. And it was a free listing that said that I had these shares available. And at the time, Local Harvest had the ability to have people go ahead and purchase them online. And they would like take their little commission. They would send you the rest. I'm pretty sure they probably still do that now. 
And But I had to let people know where they would be picking up these shares, right? So I looked at the different farmer's markets that were close to us, and I chose, oh, I can't remember if it was two or three locations. I think it was two locations that they could choose from um, to go ahead and pick up their, their shares. And I went ahead and launched the darn thing. And I explained what it was and how we were doing it, and lo and behold, we sold out. We had 15 families sign up to go ahead and pick up their stuff from us at these two different farmer's markets, and I had the money, and we were ready to go. I mean, that sounds fantastic, right? <laughs> yeah, except I missed some really important steps along the way. So this is where we get to the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-did part of this episode, because holy cow, I did so many things wrong that year. First of all, I never even visited those markets where I said we were going to be set up to allow people to come and pick up their shares. Hadn't been to either one of those farmer's markets. I just assumed that there would be space for us to sell that next season when we were selling our, share, selling our shares online. I mean, I'm making my garden plan... I did not verify that we were going to be able to actually sell at these farmer's markets. We got super, super lucky that there was space at both of those farmer's markets for me to sign up for that following spring. Otherwise, we would have been scrambling to find a different way for people to be able to come and pick up their shares. I also didn't really get dialed in on the specific amounts that I needed for each crop. I just thought, oh, I'm just going to go ahead and double it and we'll see how that goes. Okay. Um, I also didn't quite understand how like succession planting worked or how to keep a continuous harvest of those individual crops coming across all three of our growing seasons here in Missouri. I just thought, okay, well, I'll plant this and I'll harvest it and then I'll plant this and then I'll harvest it and they're just going to get whatever it is that I'm harvesting. Not taking into consideration that that would mean, well, they would get, you know, probably a whole bunch of one or two certain things at the beginning, and then maybe only one or two things at the end, and the rest would be a mishmash in between. Like, it, it didn't make any sense how it, I mean, it sounded right in my head, but when you put it down on paper and you looked back, it really didn't make any sense the way that I was doing this. And this was because I was not really an experienced gardener. I really was not. This, honestly, I think was only my third year gardening, and it had been my first year growing. I guess it was my fourth year, technically, gardening. But it was only my you know second year, only my first full season, planting on such a large scale. And again, I had it in my head that, oh, well, this was pretty easy because the garden did so phenomenally well. Well, of course that garden did well. I was planting into what used to be cattle pasture. It was super fertile. It had been grazed and it had been fertilized by those cattle all of those years. So all the nutrients and everything was all there where it needed to be. I knew nothing about going ahead and adding those nutrients back into the soil and making sure that I did some crop rotation so that I wasn't planting the same things in the same spot every single year so that I wouldn't encourage diseases. I hadn't been hit with any pests that year because it was a brand new garden, right? So there were so many missteps along the way 
And I just thought, you know what, this is this is how this is going to work out. It's a good thing that I'm an extremely optimistic individual <laughs> because, um, it, you know, it seemed to work out in my favor. But let me tell you, across the seasons, there were some hard lessons that needed to be learned. So, like I said, in this episode now, I'm going to talk you through the first steps that you probably need to be looking at and considering before you decide that it's time for you to take on selling at a farmer's market or doing a CSA or a subscription box, however it is that you want to get your products to the public. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You guys know I've been using Elm Dirt's products in our greenhouse and gardens all summer long with fantastic results. But now I've realized all my houseplants I've neglected all gardening season are in desperate need of being potted up. Just in time, Elm Dirt has announced their newest product, their all-purpose potting mix. This mix is a blend of organic ingredients crafted to create a living potting soil. Not only does it contain their ancient soil, a blend of worm castings along with four of the most bioactive soil enhancing ingredients, it also contains no peat moss. You guys know I'm super concerned about the environmental impact of peat moss and Elm Dirt has chosen to use pit moss for water retention instead. Pit moss is made from organic recycled paper and is a sustainable alternative to peat moss, which makes my little sustainable heart very happy. Elm Dirt is offering Just Grow Something gardening friends a little something special to get you started in using their products. Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt and use the code JUSTGROW at checkout to get a free bottle of their bloom juice with any purchase. That's justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt with code JUSTGROW at checkout for a free bottle of bloom juice with any purchase from Elm Dirt. So at the bare minimum, check out the farmer's markets that you are considering attending, right? Go early on in the season, go again maybe mid-season, and then one more time later on towards the end of the season so that you can understand the crowds, what the, the foot traffic is like, what the demand is for certain products at certain times of the year, and the current availability of what's on other people's tables. And then think about what maybe you can expand on, right? What's most in demand? What does there seem to be a shortage of? What does there seem to be too much of, right? Those things are going to start to inform your decision as to whether or not there is a market for what you plan to bring to the table. This is also good for understanding the dimensions of the market stall and understanding how they're set up. Every single market is set up differently, whether they're under a permanent pavilion or they're in an open parking lot, whether or not you are going to need to bring your own canopy, um, whether or not you are going to have to provide your own tables, those types of things you need to understand. You also need to understand the amount of space that you are going to have available to you to be able to set up and display your wares. 
Are you going to have to unload your vehicle completely and then go park it elsewhere? Or do you have enough room to pull your vehicle in and be able to set up the table and the canopy behind your vehicle? These are all things that are important to understand. You also will understand at this point the saturation of the market. Are there a ton of produce vendors and very few bakers and, and crafters and people who do jams and jellies? Or is it the other way around? Are there very few produce vendors and lots of those other types of vendors? This is going to let you know exactly how in demand your garden produce is going to be if you attend this market. You also should be checking with whoever operates that market to find out whether or not they anticipate having any space available for a new vendor the following season, what the procedures are to be able to apply for a position if there is one, and then the cost to attend the market. Some markets are completely free. Some charge a nominal fee of, you know, 5 or $10. Um, and some of them charge upwards of $1,000 to be able to attend the market that season. So that is something that you want to take into consideration and something that you want to understand. The next thing to know is what type of equipment you will need. Like I mentioned, if you have a farmer's market that has a permanent pavilion that provides the shelter for you, then you're not gonna have to worry about bringing your own pop-up canopy. But if it's in an open parking lot or it's in a park or some other open area, you will need to get a canopy and you need to understand what the dimensions of your stall are to know what size canopy you should be using. In most instances, what I've seen, you're looking at a standard 10 by 10 pop-up canopy. The other important thing to think about this, and trust me, it's something that I try to beat into my other vendors' brains, is to make sure you have appropriate weights for that canopy. If you're in a grassy area and you can stake the canopy down into the soil, that's going to help. But do not rely on that alone to keep that canopy in place if there's a gust of wind. And obviously, if you're set up in a parking lot or on another hard surface, you don't have that opportunity. You need to make sure those weights are adequate. And no, a five-pound dumbbell on each corner is not going to hold that canopy down. Look for, for weights that are specifically designed for canopies. And if you want to create your own, that's fine. That's what we've done. But understand that each one of those weights needs to probably be a minimum of 25 to 35 pounds. A strong gust of wind coming through, lifting a canopy up can very easily injure you, destroy your produce, destroy your stand. It can also smack somebody in the face um, that's a customer. And then you have a liability issue on your hands. So weights, weights, weights. Okay. Um, other things you might need to think about tables and tablecloths, chairs for you and anybody else who is helping you at the stand, display pieces and containers for displaying your produce. How much, you know, do you want to put into displaying your your goods? Another thing to think about is whether or not you want to use a scale. Now, this is going to be determined on whether or not you decide to sell by weight or by volume, or by the piece. And if you are going to sell anything by the weight, you need to have a scale that is certified legal for trade. You know, a, a regular old home kitchen scale is not going to cut it with most municipalities. They're going to make you use one that is certified legal for trade. That's something to think about. 
Something else to think about, signage, whether you're using whiteboards or you're using 3x5 cards, um, flyers, business cards, brochures, those types of things to signal to people who you are, what you're doing, where you're coming from, and also how much your stuff costs. And then are you going to try to offer samples? Now, some places will allow you to do this. Um, if so, you're going to need cutting board and utensils and a setup that is likely going to be approved by the health department, um, gloves and sanitation, that sort of thing. With, with produce, for me, I don't think it's necessary a lot of the time to offer samples unless you are selling something that is unique, especially if it's unique to the area. So either, you know, an orange watermelon or something um, that a lot of people maybe haven't tried before or an interesting type of a cucumber that maybe people would want to to sample before they actually purchase. We personally do not offer samples just because most of what we sell, most people know what it what it tastes like. You know, they're looking for a zucchini or yellow squash or tomato or whatever. And, you know, the demand is there at most of our markets where we don't have to worry about sampling. But it might be something that you would want to consider, in which case you want to make sure that you have the equipment and the setup for what you would need. Your next consideration would be, how are you going to transport all of this stuff, in addition to the produce that you're growing, to the market? You know, you're going to need containers for transporting, either it's crates or boxes or coolers if you're transporting leafy greens that need to stay cool. And you need to get all of this, in addition to all of your other equipment and supplies, into a vehicle and get it transported to the market. So do you have the correct size of vehicle for all of this stuff that needs to transport to where you're going to sell? And then think about whether or not you're going to be able to attend this market on all of the market dates or only some of them. So is it a Saturday morning market? Or is it a weekday market that happens in the afternoon or in the morning on a weekday? Think about the location. Is it someplace that you're going to be able to get to every single week for the duration of their season? And keep in mind, some farmers markets open earlier than others. I have one market that opens in the beginning of April and goes all the way till almost the end of November. That is a very, very long season. We have several other markets that are only open um, May through October. We have one that's only June through the end of September. So understand how long the season is for that particular market and know whether or not you are actively going to be able to attend all of those market days or maybe only some of them. This could be based on your schedule. If you have kids, your kids' schedule or their school schedule. Think about all of these different things before you commit to being at a market or commit to being at the market with an understanding of you won't be there during the shoulder seasons. You will only be there during the middle part of the season and make sure that that's okay because there are some markets who are going to take attendance and they're going to require you to be there X amount of times. Otherwise, you will not be invited back for the next season. So these are all things to think about when you're considering joining a market. Now, the next thing that you want to think about, and we'll touch on it lightly because right now I'm just going to assume that this isn't going to be a full-blown business for you. This is just something to do on the side. 
in which case you likely don't have to think too deeply into a business setup. Whether or not you want to be a sole proprietorship or an LLC or an S corporation, getting business banking accounts versus using your personal accounts, those types of things. If you do move beyond the simple selling of your excess produce or selling a small garden, you know, variety of produce at a single market, then you may want to consider actually doing something. Number one, to protect yourself from liability, but also number two, to make sure that you're doing things properly as far as your taxes and such are concerned. There are sales taxes on food in a lot of places. Missouri is one of them, um, and it varies from area to area. So these are things that you have to understand. You also want to think about, you know, your liability when it comes to selling food to people. What are the cottage laws in your area? You know, what are you allowed to sell without having additional insurance? Do you want to take the risk of selling food to somebody without an additional sort of liability insurance? Or is it something that might actually fall under one of the insurances you already have? These are things to look at. Things like business licensing in your area. If you're selling at a farmer's market, are you required by that municipality to have a business license to sell in their city or in their county? Um, does your state require you to have some sort of license? These are all things to consider before you just say, yep, I'm going to go ahead and show up at the farmer's market and I'm going to sell this extra, you know, batch of cucumbers that I, that I, you know, I grew. Does it make a difference on a sort of small scale? Probably not, but I'm always erring on the side of better safe than sorry, because the last thing that you want is to be selling stuff at farmer's market you know, a couple times a month and have somebody figure out that that's what you're doing and like start to scrutinize what it is that you're selling and how much money you're making and whether or not you're paying the sales taxes on it and all that kinds of fun stuff. It's just not a possession that you want to put yourself into. So understanding what it's like in your area and what is required in your area is something to consider before you make the decision that you are going to sell at farmer's markets. Um, and if you do decide that it's going to be a full-blown business, then do you want to put together a business plan? Do you want to put together a marketing plan? Um, do you want to create a logo? I mean, heck, you might want to do a logo anyway, just because, I mean, logos are fun and they help people find you. So if you end up selling at multiple farmers markets, they can find you easily by looking for that logo. Um, creating a banner. You know, it, I've always said the more consistent that your presentation is to people, the easier it is for them to find you. And if they see that same banner every single week or that same sign um, or that same logo, then they're going to be able to identify you and be able to come back to you, If especially if you're selling really good quality stuff straight out of your garden. I mean, it just tastes great, right? And so they want to be able to find you again. Um, are you going to create a social media presence? You know, do you want to put Sarah's homegrown produce as its own, you know, Facebook page to where you can tell people, hey, this is where we're going to be, or this is what we're harvesting this week. This kind of part of it is really more about how big do you want it to be? And I would say, you know, the first year, it maybe isn't something that you absolutely have to worry about, but they are things that you might want to kind of keep floating around in the back of your mind for me, what it really boils down to is just consistency. If you're going to consistently be at the farmer's market, people are going to come back to find you. If you can be consistent about your signage, if you can be consistent about the way that you lay your table out every single time, 
the more successful you are likely to be with your local people and the people who are coming to try to find your stuff. So once you get through all of these other things, trying to figure out, you know, where you're going to sell, how you're going to sell it, and that sort of thing. If you decide that, yeah, you know what, this really is something that I want to do. I've got all this stuff figured out. I have a plan. I want to move forward. The next thing that you have to think about is, do you have enough space in your existing garden or can you expand your space enough to be able to grow for the public consistently? And do you have the time? Okay, because it does take a lot of extra time. You're not just talking about the few hours that you are actually at the farmer's market. You have to think about the packing and prepping to get to the market, your time getting there, your time setting up, then your time breaking down, packing up and heading home, and then unloading your vehicle and putting all of your stuff away to be done. It is a full day thing, even if it's only a three-hour farmer's market. You also have to think about the time it will take to properly harvest and prepare those items for somebody else to consume. So it's not like you're just going out and you're picking the salad greens that you are going to eat that night. You're going out and you're picking maybe 15 bags of salad greens. You notice I said bags. Guess what? Yeah, you're going to have to have something to put those salad greens in. So you're going to have to have bags to be able to pack up. You have to be able to clean those greens, pack them up, and then store them properly before getting them to market so they don't get all wilted. You know, same thing with the tomatoes. You got to have the time to be able to pick a bunch of tomatoes and be able to bring them to market. So it's, it's a little bit more than, or it's a lot more actually, than just the few hours that you'll be spending at the actual farmer's market. So... That's kind of if you really intend on growing specifically for the for the for the public. Um, if you're just thinking that you're going to sell whatever extra that you're going to take, then you may not necessarily be at the markets consistently. Some markets don't have a problem with that. They're like, "Yep, come on, bring your stuff whenever you happen to have it." And if you're only there once a month, then that's great. Other markets frown on that. So. You need to know the market that you're planning to attend and understand whether or not just selling your extra is going to be a good thing. But keep in mind, I go back to that consistency thing. If you're only there once a month or you're there sporadically and there are other growers who are there every single week, the customers are going to go to them first. So don't be surprised if you are only there once every three to four weeks if you have to wait until everybody else sells out of a particular item before you have customers come down and start shopping with you. Consistency really does make a difference, okay? A couple other things. Do you have a dedicated space at your house to kind of store all of this stuff for, you know, your market, for your tables and your canopy and all of your other supplies? Do you have space to be able to store um, the stuff that you're preparing for market. If you do have leafy greens that you plan to sell, do you have enough room for 15 bags of salad mix to keep them cold enough to be able to to bring them to market? Do you have a place to, to keep bins of cucumbers or tomatoes before getting them to market? Also think about how much experience in gardening you have. <laughs> Remember what I did? Yeah, I definitely had confidence 
over a level of experience and it just so happened to work out. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work out for you. And I definitely had my struggles along the way. Yes, having confidence is great, but make sure that you have the experience to be able to grow what it is that you that you need to grow. And then also think about whether or not you are comfortable talking with customers who come to your stand in order to be able to sell them on what it is that you have. You know, it's it's one thing to have your friends and your neighbors coming over to your house on the weekend and you're barbecuing and you are sending them home with bags of sweet corn because you planted too much sweet corn. Do I sound like I'm speaking from experience? Yes, absolutely, I am. It's a whole other story to set up a table and make yourself vulnerable enough to put something that you grew with your own two hands out on the table and put a price tag on it and say, buy my stuff. It's a, it's more, it's a bigger deal than you, than you might think it is. And so do you, are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with talking with complete strangers about what it is that you're growing and how you're growing it and the practices that you use? Because trust me, you're going to get those questions and provide something of quality that people are going to want to buy. Now, if you said yes to all of this stuff and you you know, know that you can tackle all of these things and you're raring to go. Yes. Awesome. Great. I'm so excited for you because selling at the farmer's market and doing a CSA or a subscription service or however you want to do it is super rewarding. I don't think there is any more visceral of an experience than providing nourishment for another human being. It's just fantastic. So next week, We will talk about how to plan for growing extra produce in the garden, whether you're deciding to expand or maybe you're just interplanting and you're doing succession planting just to be able to have extra to sell. And then we'll also talk a little bit about how to price your stuff. And then we'll also touch a little bit about how you can set up your display to make it more conducive for sales. I love this topic. I'm really happy that so many of you are interested in this topic. And so we will dig even deeper into it next week. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and thinking about a market garden. And we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to Patreon.com slash JustGrowSomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.